Chapter 8. It seemed to me that I had passed the first milestone on the road toward my dream. I've been given hope almost more than I could assimilate. I even dared to hope that perhaps I would be allowed at last to see Lewis. I heard from Angelo <clears throat> that Lewis was supposed to be transferred to the Elmira, New York State Prison. Do you think I could get to see him? I asked. Not a chance, Davy. You've had to go through channels, and once they learned you were the preacher at the trial, they'd never let you in. Still, I wanted to try. The next preaching engagement that took me to the vicinity of Elmira, I made inquiries into the procedure for getting to see a boy. I was told to write a letter <clears throat> stating my relationship with the prisoner and why I wanted to see him. The request would be considered. So that was that. I'd have to tell the truth, and I'd never be allowed in. But I did hear that some boys were being transferred to Elmira that very day. I went down to the station and waited. When the train came in, a group of about 20 boys was marched off. I scanned each of their faces, but Lewis was not among them. Do you know Lewis Alvarez? I asked, walking up to one of the boys who managed to say no before the guard testily shut us off. Well, I said to myself on the way back to Phillipsburg, it looks as if I'm not going to see those boys. Perhaps I never will. Lord, let me have the grace to accept this if it is your will. But if the Holy Spirit was still closing that door to me, he was opening others. One warm night, nearly spring 1958, I was walking through a milling, noisy street in Spanish Harlem when I heard the sound of singing. I was surprised to recognize the tune as a gospel song. Although the words were in Spanish, there was no church nearby. The music seemed to come from a window in one of the walk-up tenements I was passing. Who was that singing? I asked a young man who was sitting on the fender of an automobile smoking a cigarette. The boy cocked his head to listen, as if the music had become such a part of the background noises of the city that he no longer heard it. Love some kind of church, he said, jerking his thumb toward the door. Upstairs, second floor. So I walked up the stairs and knocked on the door. It opened slowly, but when the light hit my face, the woman standing inside gave a shriek. In her excitement, she half closed the door on me and turned around, rattling off something in Spanish. Soon the doorway was filled with smiling, friendly people. They took me by the arm and pulled me into the apartment. You are David, one man said. Aren't you David? The preacher who was thrown out of court? It turned out that this was what is known as an outstation church in the Spanish branch of the Assemblies of God. The people of an outstation meet in private homes until they can afford to build. They had followed the Michael Farmer trial closely and had seen my picture. We've been praying for you, and now you are here, one man said. His, na his name was Vincent Ortez, and he was the minister of the little church. We want to hear how you came to be at the trial, he said. So that night, I had a chance to tell a group of people from my own church about the way God seemed to be leading me into New York streets. I told them what I had learned about the problems boys and girls face with the gangs and with drink and narcotics. I told them, too, about my dream and about the first milestone I had passed. I think it was God who put that idea into my head. They've got to begin again, and they've got to be surrounded with love, I said, summing up. We've seen how the Holy Spirit can reach them right on the street. I, for one, think it's a magnificent beginning. Who knows? Maybe someday they'll even have their house. It turned out to be an impassioned speech. I found that I was more excited about the problems these young people faced than I had guessed. By the time I had finished, I could see that these good people felt my grief and urgency at the need. When I finally sat down, several of these men and women held a brief discussion. They spoke excitedly for a few minutes and then pushed Reverend Ortiz forward as spokesman. Do you think, he said, that you could come back tomorrow to talk to us when we could have some more ministers in to hear you? I said that I could. And as quietly as that, a new ministry was born. Like most things born of the Spirit, it came simply, humbly, without fanfare. Certainly none of us that night knew what had begun. What's your address here? Reverend Ortez asked. Where can we call you about the time and place? I had to admit that I had no address. I didn't have the money even for a cheap hotel room. 
I am, in fact, I said, sleeping in my car. Real alarm came over Reverend Ortez's face. You mustn't do that, he said. And when he had translated what I'd said, everyone in the room agreed. It's dangerous, more dangerous than you know. You must come here to our house. You must spend this night and any night you're in town right here with us. I accepted his kindness gratefully. Reverend Ortez introduced me to his wife, Delia, and I was shown to a simple bare room with a bunk bed in it. But I was made to feel welcome, and I have never slept better than I did that first night off the streets. I learned later that this remarkable couple kept nothing for themselves beyond the bare necessities of existence. Everything else was given away to the glory of God. The next morning I spent in prayer. I sensed that it was far more coincidence that I had dropped into that little home church. What was going to happen now, I could not imagine, but I wanted to hold myself as flexible as possible, ready to step out in whatever direction the Holy Spirit should point. While I was at prayer, Reverend Ortez and his wife must have been constantly on the telephone. By the time we arrived at the church where the meeting was to take place, representatives of 65 Spanish assemblies were gathered to hear what I had to say. And I had no idea, as I climbed into the pulpit, what that should be. What should I tell them? Why was this opportunity being given me to speak to these people? This time I related the events that had brought me to the city, told about the embarrassment of the trial and of the puzzling, gnawing feeling I'd had ever since that behind these seeming mistakes was a purpose that I had but barely glimpsed. I'll tell you frankly that I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. The experience at Fort Greene may have been a one-time piece of good luck. I have no idea that it could be repeated on a larger scale. Before the meeting was over, those 65 churches had come forward with a plan of action that would determine whether or not it had been a one-time experience. They would hold a mass rally for teenagers in St. Nicholas Arena, a prize fight center in New York where I could address many gangs at once. I was hesitant. In the first place, I wasn't sure that mass meetings were the right approach. And then there's the very practical matter of money, I said. It would take thousands of dollars to rent a big arena. Suddenly, there was a commotion in the back of the church. A man had jumped to his feet and was shouting something. I finally made it out. Davy, he was saying, everything's all right. Everything is going to be all right. I thought he was some kind of fanatic and paid no attention. But after the meeting, the man came up and introduced himself. He was Benino Delgado, an attorney. Once again, he repeated his statement that everything was going to be all right. Davy, you go to St. Nicholas Arena, he said. You rent it and talk to these kids. Everything will work out. I honestly thought he was one of those excitable, if harmless, visionaries of which every church seems to attract a few. But Mr. Delgado saw the quizzical look on my face and pulled from his pocket the largest roll of bills I had ever seen. You talk to those children, Davy. I will rent the arena. And so he did. This was how, literally overnight, I became involved in a citywide youth rally scheduled to be held in St. Nicholas Arena during the second week of July 1958. When I returned to Phillipsburg with the news, everyone became excited. Only Gwyn was a little silent. You realize, she said at last, that that's just when the babies do? I hadn't realized, but how can a husband say a thing like that to his wife? I mumbled something or other about the baby coming late. Gwyn laughed. It'll be right on time, she said, and you'll have your head in the clouds somewhere and won't even know it, and one day I'll present you with a little bundle and you'll look at it in astonishment. I don't think you really know a child exists anyway until he walks up to you and says, Daddy, which is doubtless true. The church in Phillipsburg was most generous, not only with its money support during the next few months when I could give it so little of my attention, but with its enthusiasm. I'd been keeping everyone posted on my trips to the city, telling of the tremendous problems these 12, 13, 14-year-old boys and girls were facing, so they knew how much a part they were of anything the Lord was planning for New York. 
I took my vacation to coincide with a rally in order to be away from the church as little as possible. But still, as July approached, I found myself spending more and more time in the Ortez apartment. We got splendid help from the Spanish churches. They supplied us with street workers who posted bulletins all over New York announcing the week-long meetings. They trained batteries of counselors to be available in the dressing rooms of the arenas for boys and girls who might decide to try a new beginning. They arranged for music and ushers, and they handled the practical arrangements with the arena. All I had to do was supply the teenagers. They had seemed such a simple thing when it first proposed, but the closer we came to zero hour, the more I doubted the wisdom of this big rally. Walking the streets, I had talked to hundreds of boys and girls, but I had never until now grasped what it was like to be inside their desperation. The simple prospect of traveling a few miles and entering a large building so routine to you and me loomed for them as an immense and peril-filled undertaking. They were afraid in the first place to leave their own turfs, afraid that as they passed through another gang's territory, they would be jumped. Then they were afraid of large aggregations of people, afraid of their own hates and prejudices, afraid that their anger and insecurity would erupt out of control into bloody fighting. Strangest of all, they were afraid that something in the rally might make them cry. Bit by bit, I came to realize the horror these young people have of tears. What is it about tears that should be so terrifying? I asked them again and again, and each time got the impression that tears to them were a sign of softness, of weakness and childishness in a harsh world where only the tough survive. Yet I knew from my work in the church how important a role tears play in making a man whole. I think I could almost put it down as a rule that the touch of God is marked by tears. When finally we let the Holy Spirit into our innermost sanctuary, the reaction is to cry. I've seen it happen again and again, deep, soul-shaking tears, weeping rather than crying. It comes when that last barrier is down and you surrender yourself to health and to wholeness. And when it does come, it ushers forth such a new personality that from the days of Christ on, the experience has been spoken of as a birth. You must be born again, said Jesus, and the paradox is this. At the heart of this newborn personality is joy, yet the joy is ushered in by tears. What instinct was it that told these boys and girls they might have to cry if they came into contact with God? They had their own way of expressing this fear, of course. I paid return visits to the gangs. I had met the rebels and the GGIs, the chaplains and the Mau Maus, inviting them to the rally, and everywhere it was the same. You're not going to bug me, preacher. You're not going to get me bawling. Everywhere the same fear of the unknown, the same clinging to the familiar, no matter how wretched, the same resistance to change. One night, sometime after I had been to the basement hideout of the GGIs with the news of the rally, there was a knock on the door of the Ortez apartment. Mrs. Ortez looked at her husband with raised eyebrows. He shook his head. No, he wasn't expecting anyone. Mrs. Ortez put down a knife with which she had been slicing meat and walked to the door. There stood Maria. As soon as she stepped into the room, I knew that she was high on heroin. Her eyes shone with an unnatural brightness. Her hair was all over her face. Her hands shook at her side. Maria, I said, getting up. Come in. Maria came into the center of the room and demanded in a brusque, belligerent manner to know why we were trying to break up her old gang. How do you mean, Maria? said Delia Ortez. Coming down and trying to get the kids to a church service, I know you. You want to break us up. Maria began to curse as roundly. Vincent Ortez half rose in his chair in protest and settled back down again in a gesture that said, Go ahead, Maria. I'd rather you express it here than out on the street. One of the Ortez children came into the room and Delia moved instinctively to stand next to the child. In that moment, Maria rushed to the table where Delia had laid the butcher knife. One sweeping movement of the knife was in his fist, her fist. Its long blade flashing, Delia jumped quickly between Maria and the child. Vincent leapt to his feet and started across the room. Stand back, yelled Maria. Vincent stopped because the girl had lifted the knife to her own neck. Ha, she said. I'm going to cut my throat. I'm going to stick myself like a pig and you're going to watch.
All of us in that room knew enough about the despair of the narcotic addict to know this was no dramatic and idle pose. Delia started talking rapidly about the long and wonderful life Maria had had ahead of her. God needs you, Maria, said Delia over and over again. Slowly over a five-minute period, while Delia never stopped talking, Maria's knife slipped lower and lower until finally it hung from her hand down at her hip. Still talking, Delia was inching closer, and at last, with one beautiful and agile leap, she knocked the knife from Maria's hand. It clattered to the floor. It spun around and round. The child began to cry. Maria made no effort to get the knife again. She simply stood in the center of the room, the most forlorn bundle of dejection I had ever encountered. Suddenly, she began to moan. She hid her face in her hands. There's no out for me, she said. I'm hooked, and there's no way out. Why don't you give God a chance with you? I asked her. No, that's not for me. Well, at least let the other kids come. Think. Maybe they can find the way out before it's too late. Maria straightened up. She seemed to have gotten back her composure. She shrugged her shoulders. It depends if you've got a good show, said Maria. And with that, she turned and walked out of the Ortez apartment, head high and hips swinging.